This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is one that's very topical, important, and especially for those who are wanting to be in leadership because the title is Leadership in the Bible. A practical guide for today, the co-authors Paul Ohana and David Arno. David joins me today from the United States. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. Great to be with you. This is a uh, an important book uh, from a lot of uh, different perspectives. Uh, leadership is an important topic for individuals in business, but also those who are in church or in nonprofit-related uh, endeavors. You specifically have focused on the Bible as your guideline. Why did you do so, and why did you use this title, Leadership in the Bible? Well, let's get to um, why we focus on the Bible first. You know, we live in a time when uh, really the only constant for many people seems to be change. The world is changing faster and faster uh, with every with every day that passes. And there's a lot of anxiety that comes with that. There's a great deal of uncertainty. There are impossible kinds of decisions and choices that people are needing to make all the time. And in times like that, we have found that finding a source of constancy is actually a great value. So there are people looking for wisdom. People are looking for uh, sources that are tried and true and have really passed the test of time when they're looking for ways of approaching the difficult situations that they face today. So the Bible is not the only one of those texts around, but it's certainly one of them. And for people in the Western world, it, it is a, a foundational text. So it, it has stood the test of time in every respect. And it's, it's, a good, it's a good foundation to stand on when you look out at a world that's changing so quickly. Who are you trying to reach with your book? Is this one that's really designed for people in leadership in business, or will this transcend even that? It's definitely for people who are in uh, leadership positions in business. Many, many of the examples that we um, use in the book from the contemporary world are from the business world, in fact. But, um, you know, leadership really is, um, it's a role and it's a responsibility. And it's not necessarily, um, you know, whether you're in a corner office. So leadership really, you can be a leader in your family. There is a whole field of self-leadership. So I would say that the book is relevant for anybody who, who is taking responsibility. You can be taking responsibility for a large group, for, for a small group, for a church or synagogue group, for your family, or for yourself. So the book has application, I think, to anybody who's in a position of responsibility and has to make decisions. You've broken your book down into five distinct parts. One is earliest times, and then you highlight some very key characters that many people will recognize from biblical times, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and uh, then you have a parting wisdom area. In chapter one, you deal with getting off to a good start. How would you describe that, and what is your concept there? It's fascinating. If you look at the creation story from the point of view of a psychologist and a management consultant, and that's what's, <laughs> that's what's unique about the book, you have a, a, a team of, a, of uh, unusual leaders that's taking you through very familiar territory. So what do you see? You see that God is creating the world in six days. And you also know that the option of creating the world instantaneously, snapping the fingers or just all at once, was certainly an option. But what you see is a very deliberate process, step by step. And there's evaluation. After each step, God steps back and says, it's good. Once he says, it's very good. But you get a um, seven times a variation on that theme of it is, it is good or very good. 
So what do you learn from this? Because in a sense, you know, we are all creators of worlds, whether that world is a very large world or a very small world, a very big company or a very small family. We all are creators of, of the things around us to, some, to a greater or lesser extent. How do you approach the beginning of a big project, the beginning of a big creative effort? So what we're taking away from the story is something very simple. Do it in a very deliberate way. Don't think that you can get it all done by snapping your fingers all at once. That's not what God does. Be planful, be deliberate. And when you have a huge project, break it into smaller pieces and evaluate. God is evaluating how the work is going at every single phase. And it's a very, very sound principle of management. After every phase, step back and say, how far have we come? How's it going? So it's a very, very basic lesson. Um, but it's one that's very, very easy to overlook. We're living in a world now where, you know, everything should be done yesterday. And what you can get from this story is take your time step by step. And the other thing that's very interesting, too, is, I mean, God is doing this all alone. But imagine that this was a team project and, and God's the boss, the manager in charge of the whole thing. God would be saying to the team, it's good, looks good, looks very good. So the idea is if you're in charge and you're the manager and you've got a team that you're working with, give them feedback, not just when the whole project is done, but each step of the way, give feedback. And you see the value of positive feedback. There's a whole literature on quick wins. You, when, some, when you can put a quick win on the board, when you can tell your team, hey, great work, that motivates the team to get to the next step with great energy and great confidence and great appreciation. So you've already set the ball going in a great direction just by saying it's good. So those are some very simple lessons that you can learn from this story. But those are those are not the usual lessons that people take from reading the creation story. That's true. And that's why I loved writing the book with Paul. Faulty communication is an obstacle that many of us have to overcome. What is your concept or what is your approach to overcoming those types of uh, communication errors? Again, we, we look at a story that is usually used to teach a completely dis different lesson, to learn something very important about communication. The story that we learn, uh, that we look at, is the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And what you see, and you have to read the story pretty carefully here, what you see here is something like the game of telephone, where what the message starts from God to Adam and contains certain pieces of information, and by the time Eve states the same, supposedly the same message to the serpent, the, the, the content of the message has changed. And you, you, this requires some careful reading. So God basically says to Adam, do not eat of this, the fruit of this tree. And when the serpent speaks to Eve, Eve says to the serpent, well, God said not to eat of the fruit or not to touch it, lest we die. So there's a, the, Eve adds an extra prohibition. Mm -hmm. And you might say, big deal. But <laughs> here's, here's what, what an old rabbinic uh, legend tells us about how did this, this, how did this act, how did the fall actually occur in this garden? And this old rabbinic legend goes like this. The, the serpent heard what Eve said, and the serpent, the wiliest of all animals, knew that that wasn't exactly the message. And just when he heard Eve say, and if you touch the tree, you'll die. The serpent pushed Eve against the tree, and she didn't die. And so the serpent said, look, you didn't die from touching it, so you won't die from eating the fruit either. So the point is that this little gap, this little addition in this case in the chain of communication leads to disaster. It and does. We, see, we see in the world today how important it is when you go to have any type of surgical procedure in the hospital. They'll be asking your name 20 times. They'll be asking you what procedure you're in for. Mm -hmm. Because with all of these checks and double checks, they still occasionally operate on the wrong limb or the wrong patient. So the point is, when you're in the position of responsibly communicating a message of real importance, two things. Make sure that the person that you're talking to has heard the message. Ask them to repeat it back to you. It doesn't have to be verbatim. But in their own words, do they get the essence of the message? Are they adding to it? Are they taking away from it? If God had done that with Adam, 
maybe Adam would have done that with Eve. And, you know, maybe, who knows, maybe know. we would still be in a better place. That's, that's even good advice. In the uh, family situation, you're dealing with teenagers, and often they hear one thing but do something else. So the, right. even that communication idea or strategy is an excellent one. Right. It's a, it's a very classic approach to uh, making sure that the message is heard properly. You, it, you remember the submarine movies <laughs> yes. and this whole message, this whole way of, you know, all ahead, right, full, all ahead, right, full. The, the government, the Navy, developed this to make sure that there would be as few communications errors as possible. So it's possible to reduce these errors greatly. Maybe not 100%, but very greatly, if you're careful. One other thing that is important about your book, and I'll say this on behalf of my listeners, you don't just talk to guys. You also talk to women in leadership. That's an important aspect of leadership, isn't it? Well, for sure, um, the talent pool in the world uh, today is <laughs> composed of half men and half women. And any company that is going to want to succeed is going to need to have the, the talent of the whole human race reflected in its leadership, on its board, on its, in its highest levels of management. So for sure. And, you know, you can, you can see that women are in, in very important positions in key places in the Bible. Throughout the Exodus, in the beginning of the story of the Exodus, there are five women who really turn the, the whole story turns around them. Uh, we don't know the name of Pharaoh in the story of the Exodus, but we know the name of some of these women who who defy Pharaoh <laughs> uh, and wind up saving Moses. Phenomenal. So uh, very, very powerful roles that they play. And the lesson here is that you want to succeed. You want to, um, let's say, um, get to a better place. Uh, <laughs> You've got to have the participation of everybody who's who could be on the team. The title of Chapter 10 is Hope Wins. That's an important topic for you to uh, focus on, isn't it? It's critical because uh, there's no way of coping with, with all of the ups and downs in life without hope. And I'll just give you a couple of things, uh, important takeaways to think about in terms of what hope means. Hope means you remain humble and uncertain no matter how strong your hope is. Hope means that you keep on going even though you feel like giving up, you feel like freezing up. It means you keep going because in the going emerges the, possi the new possibilities uh, from which hope, real hope can emerge. So here there's, a f there's an, another very important story. It's a kind of chilling story in a sense. Um, the story of the binding of Isaac. When God says to Abraham, take your son, your beloved son Isaac, to a place that I will show you and sacrifice him as an offering to God. And usually this story is, it's brought to show the importance of obedience. And Abraham is praised in most circles because of his obedience. We think that there's a whole other lesson to take from the story. And the lesson is the lesson of hope and the power of hope. Because it's very clear uh, that if you look at Abraham's character, that he, this is a man who values human life. He argues with God to protect the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a person who, who doesn't take innocent life in some kind of casual, wanton way. So he is in a, he's in a very, very difficult dilemma. Valuing the life of his son on the one hand, the love of his son for his son, and valuing the relationship that he has with God. So it's, it's like this impossible conundrum. And this is the kind of situation, it may not be, you know, this exact situation, but the, the impossible situation. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. You can't go forward, you can't go backward. Either choice seems to be fraught with terrible, uh, terrible, terrible consequences. So there's no way out. And that's the kind of situation that leaders find themselves in too often. And what you can learn from Abraham are a few things. And we look at, we look at uh, this whole notion of hope through the thinking of an amazing French philosopher, Gabriel Marcel, who wrote about hope in 1942 when France was being occupied by Nazi Germany. So a very, very dark time in French history. And Marcel said that hope is situated with the, within the framework of the trial, not only corresponding to it, but constituting our being's veritable response. And how does the story of the binding of Isaac start? And God tried Abraham. Mm -hmm. So immediately, Abraham is in this, this the situation of the trial. And he responds in some very amazing ways. 
First of all, he's humble. He's not knowing for sure what the outcome is going to be. How could he possibly know? He remains in a state of movement. He's moving forward all the time in the hope that in movement, new possibilities will emerge. And they do. Abraham finally gets to the top and to the, the end of the tale, opens his eyes, and there's a whole new possibility. And to hope means behaving as, you can, as if you can see the outcome that you want. When Abraham is asked, where is the lamb? He said, God will provide the lamb. And Abraham tells the youths that he takes with him to the mountain, you stay here with the donkey, and Isaac and I will go up, we will pray to God, and we will come back. We will come back. Abraham has a vision of what he wants to happen, and if you don't have that vision, you really can't have hope. You've also focused on primarily Old Testament characters. This will be of wide appeal, I'm thinking, because you've done so. Well, thank you very much. Uh, this, this, these are stories that are foundational to the Jewish religion, uh, Christian religion, and many of these stories are, are in the Koran as well. Fascinating to know. Whole new possibility. Absolutely. And in a couple of sentences, share with my audience why they should get a copy of leadership in the Bible. We all are facing very difficult decisions in life every day, whether we're uh, at home, whether we're at work. And what this book does is it looks at 40 very familiar stories in the Bible, and it, it gives you a, a way of thinking about the, the stories in a new way and a way of linking the wisdom in that story to the de decision that you face in your life that's facing you, whether it's how to communicate more effectively, how to hold on to hope, how to launch a project more effectively. It will give you some very time-tested wisdom, wisdom from the Bible and wisdom from a management consultant and a psychologist, too, about how to make the best decisions you can. And a way to help you manage your life more effectively at work and, and at home. So some Absolutely. great, great ideas in the here. The title of the book, again, is Leadership in the Bible, A Practical Guide for Today. Our co-authors, Paul Ohana and David Arno. David has joined me today to share his perspective on this particular book. David, where can my listeners get copies of your book? Well, the book is available online at this point at um, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and iUniverse possibility that you will have a website developed soon. Yes. Uh, the website is um, leadershipinthebible.com. No spaces. No spaces. Leadershipinthebible.com, the title of the book. Thank you for joining me today. Is there another book in the works between now and perhaps the next year or so? Not sure. We have some ideas, but right now we're putting a lot of effort into marketing this book. We'd like this to book to be uh, a great success uh, so that the next one will be even more successful. <laughs> Fantastic. 262 pages of great information and ideas. Leadership in the Bible, a practical guide for today. David Arno has been my guest. Sir, thank you for joining me today. A great pleasure. Thank you, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. 
An important book and an interesting history is outlined in today's featured book. The title is Black Warriors, the Buffalo Soldiers of World War II, and our author, Ivan J. Houston, joins me from California. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here on your program. This is a fascinating book on many levels, not only because uh, some of us who are not perhaps long in tooth, if I may use that phrase, or are younger, <laughs> may not understand the uh, the challenges of World War II, not only from the fighting standpoint, but also from the enlisted folks who are there. The uh, army in army and uh, the military in World War II was, in some regards, segregated. You're one of those survivors, one of those individuals that fought on behalf of the United States. And uh, it says in uh, the foreword of your book an interesting phrase, uh, an interesting paragraph that caught my attention. It says in 1942. Ira Lewis inaugurated the Double V program, which demanded that blacks risking their lives overseas receive full citizenship at home. That caught me. Why was there not full citizenship? And tell me the background story of black warriors. Well, uh, there was not full citizenship at home because uh, uh, we couldn't go everywhere like we can now. If you went to, you couldn't go into restaurants and many cities, not only in the South, but uh, even in the North. You couldn't stay at hotels uh, here in uh, even Los Angeles, where I live, uh, and where I was born 89 years ago. My. So uh, it was a definitely, we were what I refer to as second-class citizens. Hmm. Difficult to understand uh, in today's world. I uh, I guess so. I guess so. Yes, but you overcame those challenges, became an enlisted man, and or were you conscripted into the Army? No, I, I enlisted. I enlisted the day before I turned 18 because I found out that I could finish another semester at the University of California, Berkeley, where I had uh, completed one year if I enlisted. If I was drafted, I would have been gone in 30 days. So uh, I enlisted and ended up in the uh, ended up in the infantry in a very strange way, <laughs> and, and it was segregated. <laughs> and what was what was your position as you uh, grew through the ranks of uh, the military? Uh, well, I was uh, initially a scout, scout observer in a third battalion headquarters company, and uh, then I uh, then I was uh, became the battalion clerk. Uh, which meant that, uh, with, and also, I was also assisting the operations sergeant and still working as a scout. So I had multiple uh, duties uh, as, a, uh, as a soldier, not just one single duty. It was in the position as a, uh, of uh, recording everything that our battalion did, hour by hour, uh, that uh, became the framework for the book that I wrote. You were a combat journal specialist in your battalion, and that well, uh, certainly set you up. Well, you might say that I was one of them. One there of them. were not. I was, I, there weren't just. It just wasn't me. There were about three or four of us that uh, maintained the journal. We got our information from uh, what we call from telephone because we all, always had a telephone line running to our combat positions if it wasn't blown up by the Germans. Sometime by radio, not very much during World War II, and uh, then often, very frequently, by messenger runner. A guy would uh, take a message from one company to another company. They would all report to battalion headquarters. We would write it down, and so we had sometimes minute-by-minute records of what was actually happening. Where did the term Buffalo Soldiers come from? The term Buffalo Soldiers came from uh, the fact that uh, black soldiers fought in the American Civil War. Some of them were sent west, cavalry, uh, to, and they engaged the uh, Indians, the Native Americans, in, uh, in, after the Civil War in the western plains of the United States. The Indians thought that they were very brave soldiers, also, because of the hair of the buffalo is not uh, not unlike the hair of uh, of black uh, uh, citizens, hmm. so it was possibly in that area that they began to call them uh, buffalo soldiers, and that name stuck stood. 
You have also had a dis- distinguished career in business following World War II. Share a little of that history as well. Well, I, uh, I graduated from the University of California, Berkeley. Then I went studied actuarial science at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. Uh, I went to work for a company that my father founded, uh, Golden State Mutual Life. And uh, then I rose and became the chief executive officer and was in that position from 1970 to 1990. And uh, also while I was there, I was a member of the board of uh, Pacific Telephone Telegraph Company, which is now AT&T, First Interstate Bank, which is now Wells Fargo, uh, Metro Media, several other major uh, uh, Fortune 500 companies, so I had a quite a varied and busy business career uh, in those kinds of capacities. You retired in 1990, I believe, and had nothing to do. You say you're unemployed, so you decided, well, I'll just I'll just pen my memoir. Is that, is, yeah, is that how it came right. together? Well, my wife and I did a lot of traveling, especially to back to Italy, because uh, yeah, I had maintained kept this journal uh, in it got to me after World War II, very strange way, but uh, it was about 400 pages, but it just stayed there. But we did a lot of traveling, especially to Italy. Yeah, well, I was in combat there, which was from uh, August 1944 to April, to May 1945. You really didn't know where, quite where you were, and uh, Italy's a beautiful country, and uh, it, we traveled there... Uh, and and saw a great deal. It, you know, I was determined because I had this journal that I had to write something about what happened to me and to the rest of the Buffalo soldiers that fought in Italy. Because if you can imagine this, there are more than 400 of us still buried there in the U.S. cemetery in Florence, Italy. Mm. An amazing tale, amazing story, the uh, the history of the Buffalo Soldiers of World War II. What of the action sequences that are listed in your book or told in your, do- in your book do you think the reader is going to find the most startling and, and uh, amazing? Uh, there are several. Uh, I think one where we thought we were fighting to get to the top of a hill, a mountain called Mount Canale, near a little town called Serravezza in Italy. And uh, it's a, on, on this day, our battalion lost uh, over 75 men. Uh, I was there trying to get ammunition, as I say, I did multiple things, to, the, uh, to our company on the top of the hill, which was running out of uh, ammunition. And uh, we were just blasted by a machine gun and artillery fire. Several were killed and wounded. Uh, I myself was not hit by fragments, but actually fragments falling from the sky landed on my uh, on my clothes and burned the way through to the skin. Mm. It was a, a terrible action that we were in and very memorable to me to this day. The Italian people in Lucca, once a year, still commemorate some of those battles, don't they? They do. I was just there for the 70th anniversary of the liberation of the city of Lucca by the Buffalo Soldiers. They have what they call reenactors. We drove in World War II jeeps and army vehicles, which are in pristine condition. And uh, we entered uh, the city of Lucca and were cheered loudly. I was the only Buffalo soldier there, but I was leading the procession. So you can just imagine how I felt mm. with these people cheering me. Wonderful honor. Uh, unfortunately, it was not that way after World War II, was it? It took a while for things to turn around and become, I, I guess, normal as we see it in today's world, uh, where everyone is honored for who they are. That's absolutely correct. We, uh, we returned, and uh, there was no difference uh, in our status. We were still second-class citizens. I, as a uh, 
was back to the University of California at Berkeley. Could, I was unable to get uh, uh, married uh, uh, students' housing because I was uh, an African American. Uh, I was they had they gave me housing uh, with the black shipyard workers in Richmond, California. Wow! But uh, it sting things still did, had not had not changed. Didn't change until the '60s and. Dr. Martin Luther King came along. What is it in your character or in your upbringing or perhaps advice that you received as a young person that caused you to aim for success and achieve it? Well, I think the principal role model there was my father, who was also an artillery officer in the Buffalo 92nd Division in World War I in France. So he told us all about that. And uh, he was uh, a wonder, a great businessman. He's the one, one of those who helped to co-found the uh, company that I was the CEO uh, from 1970 to 1990. So he was, he was, uh, and he was involved in the community. He never let uh, the fact that there was racial discrimination or segregation stop him in anything. Beautiful. There must be an underlying story, a message in addition to the obvious that's here. What do you want people to take away from this read? Uh, I'd, I'd like them to take away the fact that uh, here we were, uh, as, at, at that time, second-class citizens in our own country, yet we were fighting to free uh, the Italian people from oppressors because... Uh, their oppressors were the Nazi Germany and in northern Italy, still fascist Italy. So we, second-class American citizens, black troops, gave them their liberty. And they celebrate that here after 70 years, still celebrating their liberation by these Buffalo soldiers. So I'd like people to read the book with that in mind. And you've been back, what, nine or ten times to Italy? Yes, ten times. I've been back to Italy, not to the same places, but uh, in the last three years I've been back to uh, to Lucca. <laughs> and it's a wonderful city. Is there any time when you were in service that there was absolute terror, that you were concerned for your safety? Well, the time that I described uh, at uh, Saravezza, uh, was one. There was another time that we were caught in a uh, a villa. Fortunately, we didn't have to dig too many foxholes in Italy. We fought from city to city and villa to villa. And uh, the villa was uh, hit 127 times while I was in it, me and about six other guys. But it was very strongly built. We were covered with debris, but we got out alive. So you know, that was uh, another adventure. You also have had the honor or distinction of meeting the Pope several times. Yes, I did. I uh, I met uh, Pope John Paul II uh, once in 1988. I, it, was, it was at Vatican City and in the, the big auditorium there, and he came down the aisle and he just walked over to me and shook my hand. Fortunately, they took a picture of it. <laughs> Wonderful. And then again, my wife and I were presented to him in uh, 1996 uh, because we were celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. Incre so we were presented to him at that time. You have written and penned an incredible story, not only of the Buffalo Soldiers of World War II, but also your personal legacy is included in this book. It's a beautiful book of 244 pages or so, titled Memoirs of the Only Negro Infantry Division to Fight in Europe During World War II. Black Warriors is the title. The Buffalo Soldiers of World War II is the subtitle. And our author, Ivan J. Houston. Sir, where can we get copies of this book? Well, you can get copies now, uh, according to my publisher, at most bookstores. Or, obviously, you can get it online through uh, Amazon or other uh, uh, online uh, uh, corporations that sell books that way. So it is, uh, it is available. Uh, Mr. Houston, uh, do you also have a website? Yes, I do. It's uh, blackwarriors.com.
Fabulous. And they can get more information about the book, probably read an excerpt or uh, find out more about yes, your activities. Yes, and even information about the Buffalo Soldiers, and uh, there's a lot of information on there. Are there other books in the future, since you don't have anything else to do? <laughs> well, I'm trying to write a book about my uh, business career, which was also long and uh, I think sort of unusual. But, uh, yeah, I've been so busy with the uh, with this Italian book, and now that uh, they've uh, translated into the Italian, then I haven't been able to get back to the book that I was writing. This is a great book. I would recommend it to all my listeners. Please get a copy of Black Warriors, the Buffalo Soldiers of World War II, and honor our author, Ivan J. Houston. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me on. Honored to visit with you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Judas Playing Field. And our author who joins me from my home country, Patricia Neary, is in Canada. Thank you for joining me today, Patricia. You're welcome, Jay. Thanks for having me. This is another uh, one of those scary, or would you call it just a mysterious books that you have penned? Um, it, it goes under the title Suspense Thriller. It's, um, yeah, it's pretty scary. And it's, and, and it's also a sequel to one that you have uh, written earlier. This is the second yes. in the series. The first one had to do with, shall I use the term, Asylum? Exactly. This Crazy one, house, this one, house, yeah, whatever. yeah. This 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 particular novel has a main character, Doctor James Blake, and uh, in your intro to the book, it says he was a highly respected chief medical physician at River Edge Mental Health Institution. So this yep. sets the story, sets the groundwork. Where did the storyline come from, Patricia? Um, it was. How do I say this without sounding? Much. Um, it came from um, a thought in the middle of the night. Mm. I just, um, the story comes to the writer, the writer doesn't go to the story. Right. I don't know how to quite explain that. It, it just, it, it just happens so naturally. It's like, all of a sudden you have an idea and then you run with it. But you haven't always been an author. This is a relatively recent career change, is it not? Yeah. When growing up, I wanted to be a comedian. Really? <laughs> wow. Who would have thought? Who would have thunk it? Uh, and in, 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 in Canada, that would, that would be uh, difficult since uh, the, the, uh, the comedy clubs are not open in the wintertime. They, they close down and everybody goes south. Exactly. So, hey, I, I'm... I'm destined to do uh, scary stories to, um, I don't know. Okay, anyway, I guess it's a thrill-seeking something or other. The other authors that you admired, I guess, in your early reading habits as a child, young adult, uh, what and who were they? Okay, it first started out when I was, I think, three years old. It was Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And then it went on to... Um, Pamela Cowell, Chelsea Kane, Kendra Elliott, and my new 
favorite now is Gunnar Lawrence. These authors have the same style of uh, writing as you are pursuing? Or Similar, is it yeah. Similar to it. Just, um, yeah, they have, each author puts their own spin on um, whatever idea they have, which is really interesting because there's no two authors that write the same. Now, you've managed to pen 382 pages. That must have taken a while to get the storyline together. Did you start with an outline with a character, uh, I guess, uh, scope or, or sketch? How did you begin your novel? Well, um, what I do is um, I write a chapter and then I put a point. I write another chapter, put another point. And then I have a guideline to follow. And then it just speeds along. And um, how I write is there's no set time. I write until there's nothing left inside of me. And then I take a break. And then it could be I could write 16 hours. I can write two hours. It, um, it really is. There's no set time. And then that's how I do it. Do you, uh, I have some authors that actually manually print or write their novel and then transfer it to computer form. Is this exactly the process that you I use? It. Is it? Yeah, that's exactly how. I find that it gets more ideas onto the paper and less rambling. I have uh, when, I have tried sorry. tried doing that and can't read my writing. As, uh, I, I... <laughs> you need a secretary. I, I need penmanship. I, I I never did practice well when I was in grade school, and as I pass along to many people, high school was the best ten years of my life. Uh, being a student was not my career. Wow, high school was my worst years. Well, we have something in common. We were both in the Canadian system, and it abused us mentally, emotionally, and uh, intellectually. Well, they didn't really fulfill the needs that I required. It was, um, I, I almost felt like a robot. Hmm. Yeah, and there, there, I don't know. There was one teacher, though, and her name was Mrs. Hickey. Oh, my goodness. She was, a, she was the first lady to ever introduce to me words into imagination. And I remember her reading uh, the book Narnia, and I was so engrossed. I couldn't, I couldn't, I was so excited. And I think at that point I knew... There was something in me, but it took years and years before it, it finally came out that I could be a writer. How long did it take you to complete this one, Judas Plainfield? It takes me exactly a year. Six months to write the story, and then after that, it's all that horrible editing. <laughs> Oh, and pulling pieces out and adding pieces in and putting the puzzle completely together. But afterwards, I remember I was at a book signing one time and because I had written Breach of Sanity 10 times, okay? 10 full times. Mm. And somebody asked me, oh, what is the best thing about Jesus playing Phil? And I said, I never have to write it again. <laughs> 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 the title is unique. Also, uh, Judas Plainfield. Where did that idea come from? That came from one of my characters. Or, or, okay, Roger Tot, um, who is the serial killer, is also just for a brief moment is shown in Breach of Sanity. So. Introducing that character briefly, I was able to take him and bring him into the next novel and have him as um, the evil one. This novel, because it does deal with serial killers and other graphic, um, I guess, uh, scenes, is this suitable for young children, young adults, or is it a little too intense? It is really, really intense. You know what I find, which is really um, ironic, is the older generation is reading it. Like I'm talking 40, 50, 60, 70. Mm. And I didn't, I, that was not the market that I target. Uh, 
So it, it depends. It actually it depends on what you like, right? Or what the person likes, right? Like Kirkus, um, you know, like Kirkus review. One of the sentences um, they say is, "Her unflinching work peels back the flesh behind a modern serial killer, detailing his methods and his motives." And then it says victims are murdered in vividly gruesome detail. And when readers are finally let into taught psychic, the portrait becomes even more haunting. So I would not suggest a 14 or 15-year-old read that, no. Have you been approached by a movie producer yet? No, not Not yet. yet. If you were, which of the scenes that you have penned do you think would stand out to them? Um, I believe just what I wrote or just what I read and um, on the back of the book it talks about uh, Dr. Ellen Smith and she is kidnapped um, by the serial killer. She knows him because she's the only psychiatrist that has ever interviewed him. Mm. That's where I would start it. And uh, being an individual who at one time wanted to be a comedian, serial is spelled with an S, not with a C. That's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry I had it's to bring that up. <laughs> I'm sorry I had to bring that up. You talk oh, about Dr. Okay. James, James Blake and his psyche, how, uh, I guess, uh, demented and uh, messed up he is. And then you say no one can stop him until 15-year-old Frankie Martin is admitted to River Edge and he experiences his resident evil. Yeah. That has my true. attention. It does, doesn't it? It does. Because it's true. And what um, what, what this demon man does... Um, it's just unspeakable terror, unspeakable terror. But what I heard, and this is so funny, well, not funny, but to me it's a compliment, that um, that book is so um, close to reality that it scares people. One one person bought my book and couldn't read it. Hmm. She said it's so close to reality. And, and you know, that was the first book. So... I went on um, in Judas Playing Field, and I was Roger Todd. He's a really, really, really good-looking dude. Like, I have got him, like, like, chiseled face, like, whatever, right? So women are really attracted to him. And, and I think the underlining to this book is for women, all women, be really, really careful of who you're meeting because uh, you can't trust a pretty face. Uh, that's 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 good advice. I have grandchildren that I would pass that information along. They'd ignore me, but I uh, I agree with you. That's that is an important aspect of life. And even though it's fictional, mm-hmm. it can still happen. The underlying message that perhaps comes through, besides the entertainment value, what would that be? Yeah, for women. Okay, the underlining is. I'm going to read this off. Even. After the novel's ending, it still has a breathless conclusion, and thriller fans may find the spill guts and graphic sexual scenes a little too intense, but horror readers will appreciate that the author does not stint on the specifics, which means if you bring home um, strangers or invite strangers into your home, um, be really careful. Mm. Just be really careful. And it's, and I think there's an underlining to all, everything that I write. Right now I'm working on my uh, my third suspense novel called Bully Beware. <laughs> well, that, that, that says it all, right? It, it does say it, yes. <laughs> it does say it. I guess if I were to introduce you to one of my listeners on the street corner of Toronto, let's say, and uh, and mention that you are an author. How would you introduce your books and your style of writing to them? I would introduce myself as, hi, my name is Patricia Neary. I am the author of two suspense thrillers. (laughs) Why Why should they buy this one, though, Judas Plainfield? They should buy this one be because it's very well written, very well written, and it's not just your average pop culture icon serial killer thriller. It 
comes with um, lessons. It comes with humor. It comes with all of the stuff that, that you want to be entertained with, as well as lessons. Good introduction. There must have been some challenges in completing this. You mentioned a one-year period of time. Uh, that doesn't seem like a long process from some of the authors no. I've, uh, I've, I've interviewed. Some have taken as much as 10 years to complete their work. That's not a bad turnaround. Were there other challenges that you faced to get this completed? I have, for the traditional publishing houses, um, I'm... I'm not going to say anything bad about them. What I really, really wish is that they would give new authors a chance. And by saying this, I mean you wouldn't buy a house if you only saw the foyer. Right. Read the whole book. Read the book. Don't judge the book by the first three chapters. It's not fair. You have described your book this way. It's a book about a main character. You also call it a fast-paced story, an emotional yeah. roller coaster, raw depiction exactly. of murder, and the last one, lock your doors. Ooh, yeah. I'm scared already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you start reading it, and then all of a sudden you're looking around because you, you get... I creep you out. It, it gets really creepy. <laughs> well, congratulations like, on making a creepy uh, road, which uh, my uh, teenage friends and, and uh, grandkids would say that creeps me out. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that, that's my aim. I, I write about what scares me. And, like, I'm a good old-fashioned Cape Breton girl from a coal mining family. So we're kind of tough. <laughs> mm. This sounds like a fascinating read, and again, it's a sequel. The title is Judas Playingfield. Our author, Patricia Neary, who has joined me from Ontario, Canada. Patricia, best of luck on this and your future endeavors. How do we get, get a copy of Judas Playingfield? You can uh, download it from... Any site, just put my name in and the title of the book, or you can go to any of your bookstores and just ask for it, and they will they will order it for you. Have you completed a website as yet? I have. Just look under Patricia Neary, and you'll find it. You also have one, I think, that's from your first book, breachofsanity.com. Would that also be a good uh, launching spot for them to get acquainted with your writing? It it was it was just to, just to show who I am. Thank uh, you for joining me today again. Neary is spelled N E A R Y. First name Patricia. Patricia, thank you for your success and for sharing it with our audience. And we hope to hear from you in the future. Thank you, Jay. And you have um, an awesome weekend. It was it was truly was a pleasure. Pleasure visiting with you for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.